Well, just to remind us of uh, what we've been doing, so through, as we're reading through the summer schedule, the preacher that's assigned that week from the preaching team can take any text uh, that stood out during the week, and we develop a message on Sunday subsequent to the week's worth of readings. Um, so that means we're reading this week's readings, usually by Tuesday or Wednesday, to have sufficient time to study and prepare. And that's been a real joy. It's been a lot of fun uh, uh, for all of us. And we've been dividing these messages into three sections, trying to model uh, one approach to understanding Scripture, but also trying to give some consistency, consistency uh, through the structures to all of the different messages, because we have three distinct styles, all of which we happen to enjoy. After each Sunday, we sit down and we evaluate what we did. We talk about what we learned. We talk as a preaching team about how it could have been made better. I usually get the same criticism each week. It, would, it was a good sermon. would have been better if you did it within 30 minutes, you know, and, and cut out something. But we have a great time together and develop a great rapport uh, that way. And we've been talking about the meaning because Scripture has one meaning. It's the meaning the author intended by what the author said. But we, then we'd go to significance. We begin to principalize. What do we see in there uh, that could be true for everybody? And then the more, most specific section, the response. So meaning, significant, and response. And response, some suggestions or observations about what we're going to do or think the same way or differently because of what we saw in the significance and more, spe more specifically in the meaning of the text. So you've been seeing that every week and we'll continue until we finish with this summer series. My message this morning is packed with little art-isms that you've already heard, but I don't think there's anything wrong with repeating them, mostly because they keep standing out in my mind and I can't let them go including the title. The title of this morning's message is Becoming Who We Already Are. That's what Christianity is. Christianity is the process of becoming who we already are, moving toward Christ. He has done something to establish us. We have yielded ourselves to what he has done and invited us into. And then life is about moving toward the image of Christ, becoming who we already are. He sees us as his perfect children, and life is the process of moving, taking steps toward Jesus, and becoming who he's already established us to be. You get that? Does that make some sense? It should be a little bit dizzying, but becoming who we already are. And more specifically, I have a subtitle that you can't see up there, but this is really a message about a theological concept called the sovereignty of God. Becoming who we already are. Some thoughts on the sovereignty of God and the freedom that sovereignty brings. Sovereignty, uh, controlling all authority. Nobody surprises a sovereign God. Nobody outmaneuvers a sovereign God. Nobody wins the arm wrestling match with a sovereign God. He's sovereign. He's the deal. Thoughts on the sovereignty of God. So let's keep that in mind as I move through here in my... 27 minutes I have left. I wonder if Martin Sharnan knew that he was putting good theology on the lips of Annie. Remember Annie in the musical? 
the cute little red-headed, curly red-headed kid, Annie. I wonder if he knew that he was putting good theology on Annie's lips when he wrote the well-known song, Tomorrow. Can you hear that being belted out in your mind? Well, listen to the lyric, though, because sometimes cute little Annie and that powerful stage voice is so overwhelming, so entertaining, we don't actually get to hear the lyric. But listen to the good theology in this lyric. The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun. Just thinking about tomorrow clears, I love this line, clears away the cobwebs and the sorrow till there's none. When I'm stuck in the day that's gray and lonely, I just stick up my chin and grin and say, oh, the sun will come out tomorrow, so you got to hang on till tomorrow, come what may. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you tomorrow. Not I'm going to love you tomorrow, but tomorrow, speaking to the tomorrow, I love you tomorrow. You're only a day away. Believe it or not, that's not just fantastic lyric. That's pretty substantial theology as well, especially when we're talking about sovereignty of God and what he decides and what he has established and what he has put in bold print when we're talking about tomorrow. It's biblical thinking, and it's thinking you may have noticed if you were reading through the texts this week. Normally, we would read through these texts, find a pericope or even just one verse that pounds us as preachers and develop a message around that and then present it to you. But this week, and I had done that, I had decided we're going to go from Hebrews uh, We're going to talk about lay aside every encumbrance, and that's going to be the message, and I'm excited about that message. But as I studied further in the week, I began to look at all of these readings and did more readings, and I thought, there's a thread through all of these readings. Every single book has this thread through it. I'm going to take an even higher flyover with this message because the sovereignty of God, it's like every author of every book we were assigned to read from this week was trying to make this point about some connection between the tomorrow the sovereign God has established, has established and set in motion for us, and it's not going to change, the promise of tomorrow. There's a connection between what will be and what is, something about tomorrow that's certain, that frees us to live a certain way today. And I saw that in every book that we were reading. What's true and certain about tomorrow then becomes the key to the freedom to live faithfully today. Because God is sovereign, because he says, this is what tomorrow will look like. We are moving toward this. We are then free to live like this. Does that make sense? See that connection? And every one of the books, you saw it, maybe if you did the reading, you're seeing this theme. And we're going to develop that theme a little bit. Theologically stated, it goes like this. The fact that God in his sovereignty has guaranteed that he will, this, this get a great amen. The fact that God in his sovereignty has guaranteed that he will establish a perfect, just, loving world tomorrow. Not that he might establish a perfect, just, loving, merciful, forgiving, good, pure, beautiful world tomorrow, but that he will count on it, he says. Take it to the bank. I mean, this is, a, 
This is the one time that somebody's guaranteed a win and it's going to happen. The fact that the sovereign God has promised that, this loving world tomorrow, compels us to live out tomorrow's values today. Frees us to live out kingdom values today. The sovereignty of God and the future it guarantees is our freedom. And all this week's readings employ that truth. The idea of linking God's sovereignty and what will be true when Christ returns with the conviction and power to live today as though that future were already here. We are in the process of becoming who we already are. We are in the process of living today what will be tomorrow. In the sovereignty of God, the fact that he can back up his guarantee for the transformation all of creation is going to undergo when Christ returns, frees us. Well, if that's true, it's kind of like when we were little kids playing little kid poker. Ben, our Pastor Ben wrote me and uh, put it on Facebook, maybe he's so daring, that his son Noah went to Bible camp last week and he came back excited and in love with two things, Jesus and poker. <laughs> At least it was in that order, come on. Remember when you played little kid poker and you'd play the game? And then at the end, we had this rule, at the end, when you're all done, everybody got back their money that they started with. Remember that? We'll play, we'll play, we'll compete. But when it's all done, everybody gets everything back. I think our parents insisted on it. Now tell me, does that change the way you play poker? Knowing that you're going to get everything back, everything will be restored to the way it was when you started, the way it should have been? Likewise, does that not change the way we live? The guarantee, sorry, Lord, for comparing you to poker, but if it works, it works. The guarantee that is awful and painful and unbeautiful and unforgiving and unmerciful and unjust as things are now, you have this sovereign God saying, the day is coming when it's going to be put back the way it was always intended to be. Does that not change the way we play poker today? Does that not change the way we live, affect the way we live today? And all of these texts link tomorrow with today. The sovereignty that God, the sovereign God guarantees this tomorrow and it affects the way we live today. For instance, in Hebrews 12, we were reading what, six or eight or nine or ten chapters of Hebrews this week, two-thirds of it, the last two-thirds of it. There's that text that I originally was going to preach on. It says, in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, throw off every encumbrance, fixing your mind on Jesus. He says, since you're surrounded by such, I don't have slides for this, so just listen. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses that he just described in Hebrews 11, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that easily entangles and let us run today with perseverance, the race that is marked out for us today. And then this, fixing our eyes on what's at the finish line. Who's at the finish line? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. You have this idea that the one who waits for us at the finish line, we can see him. He's there, and it affects the way we run today. Let's throw off everything that's keeping us from running better, a more pure race, a faster race, a better race. How do we do that? Just look at the finish line. The finish line says something about the race and the way it's run. 
Psalm 47. There is this command to do certain things today based on something that's true, based on the fact that God is sovereign. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. For the Lord Most High is awesome. The scripture is the only place I think that word really has a legitimate uh, living. Makes a le- Awesome. Not awesome the way we use awesome. I mean, full of awe. He's king over all the earth. That's sovereignty language. And the whole psalm repeats that movement. Do this because of who he is. Do this because of the authority and the power he has. Connecting what we do today, the way we live today, in this case, worship and response to his presence because of his sovereignty, because of what he can guarantee, because of the inheritance. He even uses inheritance language in Psalm 47. You're going to inherit this. So live freely. Don't worry about stuff. I had this friend in seminary. Man, he, he, he never bought the beer. He never bought the pizza. He very rarely tipped when he did every once in a while spring for something. He was always playing the poor card. He was always talking about how his pastoral salary is too low. And of course, on a pastor's salary, we can't. And embedding all of that kind of stuff every time he spoke to the church. And all around him, he was obsessed with his poverty. We were all poor. We were all broke in seminary. But he was obsessed with it, sort of the poor me thing. But the thing that blew my mind was his parents were incredibly wealthy, and so were his in-laws. What? I'm the son of a barber. You and I have the same school bills. Why in the world are you worried? Your inheritance, your future is fixed. Relax, for goodness sake. Buy the pizza once in a while, you know. James talks about the idea of persevering, and then there's the crown. Blessed is the one, we sang that. There's something waiting for those who hang on. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, and that's the same word for temptation. You could translate trial and temptation. They're they're all the same word in that whole chapter. It doesn't change words. The translation does. The original language doesn't. Because having stood that test, that person, what? Will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So having lived this way now, there's something that awaits us then. Knowing what awaits us tomorrow inspires some sort of a lifestyle. Now, James has got that running all through it. We read from 1 Peter. We read from both Peters. 1 Peter 1, especially verses 3 through 16, but there's this challenge to praise God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, reference to his mercy, this new life that he's given us. And then listen, I want to read a few verses here. Listen to this connection going on between the way we live now and the fact that God is sovereign and in his sovereignty has promised a certain ending for us, a certain conclusion, a certain climax for us. And we live, uh, we've received Christ who was raised from the dead and we live into an inheritance that can never perish, dominant language, spoil or fade. Who can claim that except the one who's followed the one who can back it up? We live into an inheritance that will never fade. It's promised to us. Either this is going to happen or the whole thing is a farce. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power, and then this language again, shielded now, until the coming of the salvation, which is probably more of a reference to 
this great rebuilding that God is going to do. Salvation of all of creation where earth is repaired and pollution is done away with and humanity is put back the way it should have never quit being in the first place. And all the consequences of the fall are stomped like that serpent under his foot. In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, these has come so that the proven genuineness of your faith or greater worth of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result, this proven temp, uh, genuineness may result in praise, glory, honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So the faith that we're proving is true now by the way we're living is, is dependent upon what will happen when Christ is revealed. You haven't seen him. And think of, the, think of Jesus looking at you like this. And saying this, you, you, you haven't even seen me and you still believe. How encouraging has that got to be to God? You have not seen him. and You love him. And even though you still don't see him, you believe in him. And are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the now the end result of your faith. See that connection again, that tie? The salvation of your souls. And there's a sense where we, see, we receive Christ, we, we identify with him, we acknowledge him, we yield to him, we choose to follow him. We say, yes, forgive my sins, thank you for the work you did, and we are saved. But there's also the Eastern sense, there's, that's valuable, where we're still being saved, and we look to the period being put on the sentence. When everything is fixed. Repaired, rebuilt, redone, made new. There's that connection again. First Peter. Second Peter does the same thing in Second Peter uh, one, especially nine through seventeen, and I'm gonna call out verse eleven. Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. If you do these things, you will never stumble, and then verse eleven, and you will receive. If you do now, you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. My only point in referencing each of the books that the schedule had us reading today was to say this thread runs through all of them, that there's some connection between what will be true, what a sovereign God has promised and is able to back up in, in tomorrow and the way we live today. That the promise of tomorrow, the sovereignty of God, the fact that nothing surprises him and nothing can overtake him when he chooses to move gives us freedom to live for him even now. In every book, there's some version of that idea. The fact that God in his sovereignty has guaranteed that he will establish a perfect, just, and loving world tomorrow, that fact compels us to live his values today. God's sovereignty and the future it guarantees is our freedom. And that's the theme that's running through here. That's the meaning section of this text. It's a big high flyover, not a specific verse, not exposition of a specific book. But I thought it was really fun to discover that. In fact, that's running throughout the whole New Testament, but especially these epistles that... We're reading. So when somebody says to you, by the way, hey, the, what happens at the end of the age is irrelevant. The only thing that's relevant is what's going on today. You, actually, theologically, that's uh, incomplete thinking. They're connected. 
What happens at the end of the age is relevant in part because we are given the guarantee by a guy who can finally back it up of victory. That's when all the prayers that we've prayed, like, God, why are you allowing this? And how long, oh Lord, will this go on? And how long will, will the Middle East be so explosive? And how long will missiles bring down passenger jets? How long? His answer is, part of his answer is, one day everything that's wrong will be made right. One day, even the awful choices people make that in my commitment to freedom and choice, human freedom and choice, my broken heart has had to endure right along with you, there will be a day of correction. And all that's wrong and everything that breaks your heart and every prayer that's been stacked up over generations and generations of pleadings will be answered. And I'll make it right. Since that is true, it's a guarantee. What sort of lives should we live now? Let's go all in. That's what the text is saying. Because nothing's at risk, really. Go all in. Which gets us into the significance section. A couple of things that I picked out. There's much more than this. What's the significance of that particular theme that's in these texts? Here's one. That the sovereignty of God is the lens through which we need to bring all of our lives, every decision of our lives into focus. The sovereignty of God. Here's a lens. You're blurry without it. You're clear when I put it on. The sovereignty of God is the lens through which we need to bring our lives into focus. So it's important then that we have a healthy understanding of the sovereignty of God. And there are all sorts of wacky-isms going out there that really address the sovereignty of God that reveal a flawed understanding of the sovereignty of God. I want to just address a couple of them, a couple of misunderstandings of the sovereignty of God, because since it's the lens that gives us focus uh, in our lives, it's got to be a a lens that's crafted perfectly for our eyes, right? Got to understand it. Here's one misunderstanding, and I'll, fra- I'll offer these in the phrases that they usually show up in. There's a phrase that implies something about sovereignty of God that actually is not true, that's used in churches like ours. In fact, I've used it, and many of you have probably used it too. We usually offer it when something awful happens, and a phrase goes something like this, God is in control of everything that happens. Thank God, God is in control. Do you understand how potentially unbiblical that statement is, at least in nuanced form? Because in 1 John 5.19, read it. Satan is in control of this world. How does that compare with the implication that God is in control of this world? Now, don't get me wrong. The kingdom and the power and the glory are yours. That's true. But there's something that God understands better than we do about him launching us into a period in history, at least as I understand it. Now, hear me, I might be wrong. This is important stuff we're talking about. So don't stop thinking here just because the pastor said it. This this is one understanding of things. 
I think there's something to it, but, or I wouldn't preach it to you. There's something, I suspect, about God's commitment to choice, freedom, human choice, and humans being responsible for their choices, including responsible and free to choose to follow him and begin to change. That at least in some temporary fashion, um, puts him in a position where he chooses to back off and not exercise every strength that he has. For instance, Jesus on the cross. Could Jesus have come off the cross? Could Jesus have stopped them from nailing the nails in his wrists and his feet? The hymn got it right. He could have called 10,000 angels. And he had the authority and the power to come off the cross. He had the power to just snap his fingers and everybody that's hurting Jesus falls dead and stops it. And that was an injustice that God the Father watched and Jesus the Son endured. He had the power to do that. They did not have greater power than Jesus. Jesus even said, no one really takes my life from me. I sacrificially lay it down. And human choice was involved in that that terrible act that was so good for us and so bad for him. So the fact that God, in a sense, functionally chose to not be in control in that moment and humans were exercising their freedom to do evil, even though God used it for good, doesn't mean God wasn't in control. But be careful about this idea that God is in control of everything that happens. He's ultimately in control. God is, in fact, injecting himself in human history, but he's not controlling every single... It doesn't appear to me that he's controlling every single thing that happens, that sometimes evil people who have the freedom to make evil choices do that. We have to be thoughtful about those statements and our understanding of God's sovereignty. So he's not controlling yet. Now, the text also says, one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess... Everybody will see clearly. They were th- they, there's going to be this day when everybody that's ever lived says, oh my goodness, what was I thinking or not thinking? Of course, your Lord, your God. But in the meantime, we have this squirreliness with human history. And God's not responsible for the Holocaust. If God's in control... He pushed the buttons. Do you see how that can work? Be careful about our understanding of sovereignty and the things uh, that we say. But we can't go so far as to say he's passive, he's helpless. Both, we have to live with that tension. Here's, here's another one that is particularly painful that touches on the sovereignty of God. We'll often say something like, God has a purpose for everything. I've said this to you before. It is not a true statement or it doesn't imply things that are true, to use those words. Instead, it's more accurate to say God has everything for his purpose. God has a purpose for everything. I just went to the funeral two weeks ago of my cousin's two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter, who, you've got to watch him every second, folks, who after they all went swimming the first day of a friend's pool party in a brand new swimming pool, everybody locked the pool, walked over, had the barbecue, and they looked around, where, where is she? Anybody see? And they walk over, and you know the tragic ending of that story. And am I going to say to my cousin, God has a purpose for everything. My cousin should punch me in the nose if I say that to him. Because what else am I saying? Well, God must have needed her more than you did. 
God must have directed your granddaughter to that swimming pool and overseen the... I won't go any further. God doesn't have a... God has everything for his purpose, though. That's why Romans 8 says, God causes all things. He works in all of them for good. Even awful, evil, terrible things. He is so good that he takes the worst things we could imagine, choices for which we or some other human are responsible, or even errors, mistakes that we make, oversights that cause awful things to happen. He is so good that he says, I'm going to take that dreadful experience that you had, and I will somehow use it. I didn't cause it. I didn't need it to happen in order to, but I will even take that and somehow work that for my ultimate good, which I think is eschatological. I think is the, the, that end time that he's promised, that I'm gonna, my purpose is that, and we are now going here. And if choices put us way over here, okay, we're still going there from here now. Be careful with the language. God has a purpose for everything. He must have needed her more than you did. No, God has everything for his purpose, though. That gives some eventual hope. So that's just some thoughts on the sovereignty of God. It's the lens through which we need to bring our lives into focus, this idea of sovereignty of God, his guarantee, his promise. And if that's true, we need to have an accurate biblical understanding of the sovereignty of God. It has primarily to do with his ultimate plan and what we're moving toward. It doesn't mean it's not in play now. That's the primary understanding of it, though. Second significance, and we're almost done. This is one of those phrases that I've used over and over and over again. It's linked to the idea of becoming who we already are. Second point of significance. Think of that future date. To the degree we can be today, what we will be then, to the degree we can be, what we will be, we should be. To the degree we can be, what we will be, we should be. Christians are to live now into the fullness of the kingdom of God that will be fully in place tomorrow. There is a not yet piece of that kingdom. There, there are some things that will be true and we can't, by a decision we make, live as though they're true today. Now, I can't just go choose to live like this instead of like this and then fulfill everything that will be true. There, there won't be evil in the world at all, anywhere tomorrow. Well, I can't today, by a choice I make, go and undo all of the evil in the world. But I can undo some of it by the way I live differently. To the degree we can be what we will be, we should be. I look and I say anything that is true today because of the curse that we read about in Genesis. Because humans chose this, this is now your reality. Any of those things that can be removed by a decision of the church today should be removed. To the degree we can be what we will be, we should be. Because there's a link between the sovereign promise of God for the future and the way we live today. And we are moving toward that reality, living into that reality with every choice that's laid out before us. So if it will be true then, we move toward it now. When that's not a simple choice we make, we pray for that now. We pray, we pray for that reality and we seek it. 
where the results of the fall can be reversed, we live into that reversal. I think that's part of what, if not all of what Jesus is offering when he teaches us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I often will rework work that. These aren't my words, but uh, one of my favorite theologians put it this way. When I pray that prayer, which is most mornings, cause a collision between heaven and earth that heaven wins today. Hallowed be your name. Respected and loved and honored be your name. Your kingdom come. When I pray for you, I'll pray for our church. Oh, your kingdom come. Your, your agenda come. Your dream come. Cause this collision between humanity and heaven where heaven wins. To the degree we can be what we will be, we should be. There's a connection between God's tomorrow and our today. And finally, in the last couple minutes here, so how do we respond to that? I take my responses and I offer them as options for us. You find your own responses, though. First one is this. That we assess every decision we make through, remember that idea of the, of the sovereignty of God being our freedom, the sovereignty of God being the lenses through which we bring life into focus, and the promise of what that sovereign God uh, says tomorrow is going to be like. That's our lens. We make sense of life through that promise more than through the, the, the brokenness that we live in today. So we must assess every decision we make through the lenses of why not, instead of through the lenses of probably not. We have some dream, some crazy challenge, some crazy opportunity. Our natural inclination is to say, probably not. If it happens, okay, fine. Why? We're all getting all the, everybody's giving, getting this, their, their chips back at the end of this deal. Let's go all in. It would be a good response for us to say, we are going to start with, why not? Yes. Let's start there, and then if the Holy Spirit redirects us, we'll respond. So, so if we know that God is sovereign, and if we know that His sovereignty has guaranteed our future, no one and nothing can ultimately stand against us. Did you hear what I said? No one and nothing can ultimately stand successfully against us. The text says we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That stuff, is that fairy tale stuff or is that reality? I'm tired of living as though, and I do. I, I'm tired of living though as though that is just a nicely crafted sentence and it would be nice if it were true. And I drift into that. I must assess every decision I make through the lenses of why not instead of through the lenses of probably not. Because, this is haunting, maybe it's a significant sin, offense to God, to act today as though we have no guarantees of a victorious tomorrow. We, we act today as though we have no guarantees of a victorious tomorrow, and I wonder if there aren't days when Jesus looks at that and then looks down at his scars and looks at us again. You did what? <laughs> okay, we'll go from there now. 
Not, probably not, but why not? And the second response for me that I offer to you, that we begin to lean on God's sovereignty to welcome faith-based risk. These two responses are obviously connected instead of shunning faith-based risk. At some point, without jettisoning reason altogether, it would be good if the church could say, we're going to get excited about an opportunity to risk instead of cautious and I dare you to talk me into it. And if we crash, we crash running. We must lean on God's sovereignty to give us the freedom to welcome faith-based risk instead of shunning faith-based risk. Faith, the scripture says, is the assurance of things hoped for, the certainty of things not yet seen. There is faith-based risk all over that definition. It's not the assurance of things you already can see. It's not the assurance of things, the certainty of things you already can fund. Neither is it being crazy and stupid and foolish. But there's risk involved in faith. And the fact that the kingdom, power, glory, and ultimate victory are his, they belong to Christ, frees us to confront our unhealthy addiction to safety. Security, yes. Safety, no. So we must remember that dreaming and risking are more faith-demanding than calculating and squatting. Dreaming and risking take more faith than overthinking and then the worst part, squatting, staying put, not being willing to move forward just because you can't see. Sovereignty argues that sometimes the fact that the dream is impossible, far too crazy to fund and far too exhausting to staff, Sovereignty argues that sometimes the fact that those things are true is the best reason to go for it. Amen? No, there's no amen there. Sovereign, I didn't hear one. Sovereignty argues that the greater sin is to never take a risk. Amen? There are a nation full of churches that never take a risk, that never dream, that never go for it, that act as though Jesus has no scars on his body, that act as though God has guaranteed nothing for the future, that act as things are always, as though things are always going to be as they are now. We already have plenty of churches like that. Dream with us about being a different kind of a church that says, this is our future, this is our God, this is the power that's resident in us, this is the Holy Spirit upon whom we depend, and so therefore, this is what our faith will look like. Because there's a direct connection in Scripture between the sovereignty of God and the future He promises, and the way we live today. Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Let me finish by sharing a simple lyric with you of one of my favorite songs from one of my favorite bands that no longer exists, the band Waterdeep. And there's a song on one of their albums called Hush. And the chorus, after the verses talk about, man, it's so hard to hold on, God. Listen to the lyrics of the chorus. Hush, little baby, don't say a word. Daddy's gone and bought you a great big heaven to rest in. 
He's bought it with blood and put the seal in your heart. It'll give you the hope you need to get up and start again. The sovereignty of God frees us to start again, becoming who we already are. It's the lens through which our lives must find their focus. It's the tomorrow that invites us to live it today. The sovereignty of God is our hope, our confidence, and the future it guarantees is our launching pad.